0: Hello and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. In this episode, I talk to Sam Bannister, who is the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Silo, a biotech company in Australia. Sam and I talk about Silo's work, where scientists develop different classes of pharmaceutical psychedelics, and we also talk about what makes Silo different from other biotech companies in the psychedelic space. We also talk about Sam's role in getting silos started and his passion for developing clinically optimized next-generation psychedelics that provide treatment options for the most desperate patients with the most serious mental health disorders. We talk about Sam's journey in learning about Albert Hoffman, Timothy Leary, and psychedelics and how that influenced his educational path. He studied chemistry and pharmacology in his undergraduate and then pursued his PhD in medical chemistry. Afterwards, he traveled to the United States for a postdoc at Stanford before returning to Australia to run an academic lab. We discussed the importance of finding a diversity of mentors along your journey and the value of building a personal and professional network. Additionally, we returned to how Sam made the switch from academia to developing a career in the private sector by starting Silo with Josh Isman. Finally, we round out the discussion with Sam's reflections on the role of Silo in the future of the psychedelic field and the achievable balance between the for-profit and nonprofit sectors. Be sure to look through the show notes for ways to connect with Sam and other relevant links. I want to make a quick Note before we get started here that there is a small piece of the interview right around the 16 to 17 minute mark that becomes slightly distorted. I tried my best to edit it, but just wanted to let you know that there is a little bit of distortion in there. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online Psychedelic Grad community platform free for all of its members and allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. We also have a new opportunity for our listeners to support Psychedelic Grad, If you visit the links in the show notes, you will find a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you can donate to Psychedelic Grad and help keep the dream alive so we can continue to provide resources and education to our growing community. We also want to take a moment to share that our friends over at Psychedelics Today have just launched their second cohort of VITAL, a 12-month psychedelic certificate training program for professionals to master the elements of psychedelic-informed therapy and integration. And this round of VITAL starts on April 17th, 2023. This holistic program bridges academic, clinical, philosophical, and reflective approaches to psychedelic-informed practice and allows a safe space for students from all backgrounds. It's designed for a remote, global student population with payment flexibility and scholarship opportunities. VITAL was built on the established Psychedelics Today training pedigree and developed by over 30 industry leaders. Applications are open now and being accepted until February 20th. Space is limited, so secure your seat among a group of leaders writing a new chapter in healthcare. For more information, you can find our affiliate link in the show notes. Finally, thank you to our listeners for joining me in this insightful conversation with Sam Bannister. I hope you all learn all kinds of new things about psychedelics and the biotech industry. Welcome, Sam, and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Gabby.
0: I'm really intrigued for our conversation because we're going to be talking about something that I don't know really anything about, which is the biotech industry. And I know some of our listeners, um, you know, I'm a social scientist and I know some of our listeners are either in that field or interested in other things like psychedelic therapy. So this is really getting into some uncharted territories for myself and for our listeners and, and many of our community members, which is really exciting. So, um, I know for myself, I'll be asking lots of clarifying questions to help me understand, but also hopefully help our listeners feel like they can kind of keep up to speed with our conversation. Um, But let's go ahead and get started with hearing a little bit about the company that you work for, Silo.
1: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I'm I'm co-founder and chief scientific officer at, at Silo, and Silo is an Australian biotech company that's focused on the development of next-generation therapeutics that are inspired by all of this really interesting science going on with psychedelics right now.
0: Okay, and so if you were to describe or maybe define what what is a biotech company, like what does that mean and what does Silo do within that industry?
1: Yeah, so biotech companies... Um, come in a sort of number of different styles, I guess. Uh, We're a company that's focused purely on the development of small molecule drugs, you know, as opposed to sort of antibodies or some other platform companies that are developing enabling technologies in biotech. Uh, So, yeah, our our main uh, mission is to develop medicines that are uh, super useful for treating uh, a lot of these really hard-to-treat psychiatric and neurological disorders that, that currently don't have very good treatment options.
0: Okay, I think that's a really good... Definition and explanation. I know I took a look at the silo website to try to understand a little bit more about it before jumping on the call, um, which I'll throw that link in the show notes for our listeners too, for those who are interested in learning more. Um, but like you said, I think um, one, the the website really lays out kind of what is this problem that we're seeing, especially in understanding and treating mental health, which is, you know, having these treatments that aren't necessarily the most effective. And so I I can kind of see where that biotech industry comes in in developing these new ways of forming treatments. So um, that helps paint a picture to me of what that really looks like in in my head and and what makes it um, kind of answer that question. Uh, What makes Silo unique from other companies that are maybe doing the same thing or working within the biotech industry?
1: Yeah, so the... The use of sort of psychedelic-inspired medicines in in psychiatry is is not a a very new one. Um, Obviously, this was a really productive area of research um, prior to the sort of prohibition in in the 60s. Um, So it's really sort of a reinvestigation of of the promise of this class of medicines that was sort of where the research was sort of shuttered because of prohibition. Um, so it's, it's not exactly a new field. It's sort of like a, a bit of a renaissance that's happening at the moment. Um, and, and Silo's real point of differentiation is that we're focused um, very specifically on dysregulation of the uh, serotonin signaling systems in the body um, and trying to understand how best to leverage those to treat um, you know depression, um, anxiety, eating disorders, all sorts of different things potentially. Um so yeah a point of differentiation is really this this focus on a, a super deep understanding of the serotonin system and and with a very sort of chemistry centric approach.
0: Okay interesting and maybe correct me if i misunderstand when i was checking out the website i saw this really cool graph that was kind of showing different not necessarily the types or like the names of specific you know drugs that were being developed but um i want to say the room was kind of Different purposes, like one of them was like subacute effects, and then one with non psychedelic type effects.
1: We're developing these three different product classes. Uh, So the, I'm guessing most of your listeners will be familiar with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So this is um, the idea that psychedelics and and the psychedelic experience is used as an adjunct to psychotherapy. Um, Some very advanced. Uh, clinical studies already. So we've had some very large phase two studies showing a lot of promise in things like major depressive disorder, treatment-resistant depression, um, and a lot you know a lot more pilot studies or, or smaller studies looking at things like end of life anxiety. Um, one announced now for eating disorders anorexia nervosa. So this idea that you can use psychedelics and the psychedelic experience in conjunction with psychotherapy to achieve um, you know really useful patient benefits in, in hard-to-treat conditions is, is definitely gaining a lot of clinical validity at this point. Uh, the FDA has has designated psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for some depressive disorders, indicating that, you know, that the regulatory um, bodies are likely to sort of support this form of treatment and, you know, it's very likely that psilocybin will be approved as a medicine by 2024. So, th- there's a huge need there that one of the main drawbacks to sort of broad rollout of psychedelic therapies is is the fact that we won't have enough therapists trained. These treatment sessions are sort of six to eight hours long. So there is this sort of immediate commercial need for ideally something with a similar profile to psilocybin, but with a much shorter duration of action. So this is one of the, the product classes that, that we're developing, um, you know, an oral drug that's, that's taken much like psilocybin in, in a capsule or tablet form, um, but where the duration of that trip is much shorter, maybe two hours or so, but with a similar sort of subjective profile overall. So this means, you know, instead of treating one person at uh, you know, one patient per day at one of these clinics um, with two therapists, you could potentially treat three or four in the same day. So um, immediately expanding access to a lot of different people. Um, the second product class that we're developing is sort of a sub-perceptual drug. So this is really based on a lot of the anecdotal support for microdosing um, The clinical evidence is not quite there for microdosing yet. Obviously, it's very popular in the community, has a huge amount of of anecdotal support. Uh, There are some very good studies going on at the moment. So there's actually one happening in Australia um, with a researcher um, named Dr. Vince Polito. He's running one at Macquarie looking at whether a much lower dose of psilocybin, not, not the same dose that's been used in... Um, psychedelic therapy, which is typically around 25 milligrams, but if a lower dose like five milligrams taken several times a week, or almost in a microdosing type approach can be useful in treating um, patients with moderate depression. So, um, we're only just now getting to this point where people are starting to do these really rigorous, blinded, um, controlled studies looking at, at whether people are actually getting benefit from microdosing type approaches One of the main drawbacks with microdosing of existing psychedelics, things like psilocybin, is that uh, almost all classical psychedelics um, hit this serotonin target called the 5-HT2B receptor. Um, It's unclear at this stage... Um, whether the, the doses used in microdosing will be a problem, but it is well known that activation of 5-HT2B leads to valvular heart disease. Um, and there have been drugs that have been pulled from the market um, after killing quite a few people because of this sort of unidentified risk. Um, so, so there's a drug called FenFan, which is a combination of fentamine and fenfluramine that was um, pulled from the market a number of years ago. It was an a anti-obesity drug, so a diet agent. Um, fentamine is a stimulant. Fenfluramine is a 5-HT... To uh, agonist, so that was part of its mechanism of action, but it turns out that one of its main metabolites, not the active drug itself, but one of its metabolites is actually a very potent 5-HT2B agonist, and this ended up causing heart disease in a lot of people and, and was subsequently withdrawn. So this is sort of a, an engineering, a molecular engineering problem that needs to be solved uh, in order for psychedelic-type substances to be used in a, a sort of chronic dosing manner. Um, so that's another class of products that we're developing and the third class is actually um, compounds that are not hallucinogenic, but retain some of the sort of benefits in terms of um, psychedelic-induced signaling in the body. So, uh, again, this is not quite clinically validated yet, but um, trials will be are expected to start with some sort of promising candidates in in the near future. Uh, but the idea here is that uh, you have a drug that you know induces some of the sort of structural plasticity changes in the brain that are beneficial in conditions like depression, but without causing any hallucinogenic effects at all. So this would be sort of more like a take-home medicine, um, you know, that would be very, very broadly applicable to sort of various patient groups. Um, Obviously, psychedelics are going to be most likely contraindicated for people with a history of sort of psychotic disorders or schizophrenia and certain other conditions, um, there's going to be a lot of people who may not want a full psychedelic experience in order to treat their depression. So this sort of class of product would be, you know, extremely helpful if, if it uh, checks out in the clinic.
0: I have to say you're incredibly well informed. Um, you did a great job um, explaining all of that, especially to a question that I wasn't quite sure how to frame or ask. So very well done on that. <laughs> um as a social scientist, um, as an anthropologist, really, um, in the midst of writing my dissertation, I've, I found myself being quite critical and this is not geared towards you personally of the biotech industry and, and creating these types of, you know, drugs, but the way that you explain it, it helps me really recognize that, um, there's so many reasons why we need different types of drugs, um, especially, thinking about different populations of people who um, are not looking for that psychedelic experience but want the benefits of it, especially if um, especially if we want to develop things where people can take them at home. Maybe, maybe they don't have the support system or they don't have some type of uh, system there that they can do, like a, a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy or something like that, um, and that provides another option for still getting benefits from it. So um, I appreciate that really in-depth... A description of it because it helps me understand what makes them all unique and different but also understanding what makes uh the purpose of them needed you know um
1: why yeah. those types
0: of drugs need to be developed in in different ways like that so it's incredibly helpful and insightful i appreciate that
1: yeah no, not a problem I, I think it's one of these things that's not broadly appreciated um within the sort of population uh, who, who are interested in this area, is that, um, yeah, the, these drugs, although they're excellent, psilocybin will be an excellent solution as an adjunctive therapy for many, many people, um, but it's not going to be perfect for everyone, you know? And so we're in this really interesting position at this point in history where we can start using all of these insights from all of the latest technological developments, all this interesting imaging technology we have around studying these drugs to really just sort of optimize and engineer them. And that's, that's certainly not uncommon. So a lot of the compounds that, you know, the molecules that nature makes, um, you know, obviously, they're not intended for our our use. That's not the purpose of them. They're, they're secondary metabolites and things that plants and fungi produce for their own purposes um, that are often quite invisible to us, but they're generally not for our use. So so there's always room for improvement, nearly always room to improve on these substances by tweaking them a little bit. And that's definitely something that, you know, um, chemists have done in the development of, of huge numbers of medicines throughout history.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting and it's so fascinating. It's funny too, because on the, and this is kind of a sidebar here, but on the cultural side of things, like looking at traditional uses of plant medicines and even in some of the research that I do on recreational psychedelic use, people talk about, um, you know, how different compounds within, especially plant medicines, you know, they create this, like this compound effect, you know, uh, a multiplying effect where multiple alkaloids combine together to create a certain experience. But then when those when a specific compound is pulled out of a plant medicine and made into some type of pharmaceutical drug, like some of those compounded effects are missed out on, but it's interesting too, because like you said, everybody's maybe needs a particular experience that fits well for them. And something I teach my students is this idea of everybody's body is different. And so, you know, creating a a compound or creating a pharmaceutical drug that fits, you know, different bodies is, is a really amazing and um, innovative technology really to have as human beings. Uh, it's something really to appreciate.
1: Yeah, there's a whole field of medicine that's sort of only just emerging now uh, in terms of application of the psychedelic field. But the idea of personalized medicine is exactly this, that you take a look at someone's uh, genetics or, or the sort of biomarkers that are floating around their body that um, that are consistent with a certain diagnosis. And you can actually sort of use these to gauge whether a treatment is having an effect. So people are starting to, to take this sort of approach in the psychedelic space, which is is quite interesting as well.
0: Yeah, it's really cool to kind of see all these things coming together. Um, So let's talk a little bit more specifically about your role at Silo. Can you tell us again what your position is there and, and what you do in that position?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so I co-founded the company with Josh Isman, who's our CEO. Um, he's, he's an amazing guy, um, a big sort of effective altruist, um, you know, really big into sort of climate tech and and um, alt and protein companies and a lot of other, you know, really good impactful areas. Um, so, he he comes to this space as sort of a repeat, entre- a successful entrepreneur, has been sort of a repeat founder a number of times. He's currently an angel investor in in a lot of these really ethical businesses that I've just mentioned, um, and he decided this was an area that was sort of um, – you know, ready for a a little bit of innovation. So, yeah, I met Joe at the University of Sydney. So his wife runs the Sydney Knowledge Hub there, which is a sort of um, entrepreneurship and commercialization center. And he was really sort of just digging around universities, looking for someone who might um, be interested in the mental health space, might be interested in psychedelic science more broadly. Uh, And, yeah, we sort of met at just the right time because I was leaving that academic appointment. I was looking to do something um, a little bit different. Uh, I'd, I'd lost a friend to suicide earlier that year, and that, that had a pretty profound impact on, on you know, me thinking about what I wanted to do with my life from this point forward. Um, and yeah, we, we just kind of kicked it off um, at a very interesting time, um, because Sydney was sort of in the state, going through stages of various lockdowns. So we actually did quite a lot of, you know, meeting over Zoom, fundraising over Zoom. Um, yeah, it was a strange time to be to be starting a business. Um, I went through an accelerator there uh, in Australia called Startmate. So this is sort of the the preeminent um, Australia and New Zealand startup accelerator, a little bit like Y Combinator in, in the US, which your listeners might be familiar with. Uh, yeah, and then we we kicked the business off and got right to work doing um, R&D once we'd, we'd raised this pre-seed round. Um, and so my role there was really to sort of um, generate a lot of the scientific program, um, bring the sort of development framework that was going to be needed to go from sort of concepts and, and the, the basic science of these substances and turn them into really advanced medicines. Um, so we've been doing that for, you know, almost a year now. Um, and we've managed to build out a, a pipeline of several hundred molecules. We've used a number of different approaches. So we've done both um, what's called rational design in, in drug development, which is where you make informed sort of tiny tweaks to the molecular structure and observe what the effect is um, in terms of you know, their biological properties. And then we've also used um, some of the more modern methods like computational discovery. So something that's called high-throughput virtual screening. So a super interesting approach where you take a digital representation of of a target of interest. So in our case, this was the 5-HT2A receptor, the sort of primary psychedelic receptor. Um, You build this quite realistic three-dimensional model based on structural information. um, And then you you sort of throw 100 million virtual molecules at it, see which ones uh, interact in a, a favorable way. And from there, you can go back and start actually synthesizing some of those, screening them at the various receptors to make sure you, you're actually getting the effect that you see beyond the computer um, and use those as a starting point for entirely new classes of drugs um, targeting these same sites. So yeah, that's that's my sort of role is, is running a lot of the science, um, you know, helping to build out the team, um, a lot of fundraising in the last little while. We just closed a seed round a, a AUD 5 million dollar seed round that was oversubscribed. Um so yeah, sort of everything on the science side and, and a little bit of the business admin and and just team building as well.
0: Wow, this is such fascinating work. I've as someone who's never had a foot in the door with anything biotech related besides like a neighbor who does like nanotechnology stuff that I don't understand either. <laughs> like um you did again an a phenomenal job explaining that, but it's just so fascinating to hear All the different ways of like tweaking different things or trying different models, and even like the computer simulation model, and then doing more experimental work afterwards. That's just so fascinating. Like, I never knew that that's how any of it worked. So, this is very enlightening yeah. to me. <laughs> very yeah, the, interesting.
1: The process for doing drug development obviously is being refined for, for many decades now. We've got huge companies that are very successful at, at generating new medicines. But what's super interesting in this space is is one of the silver linings to Prohibition is that we've had this sort of black period where just nothing was really being done. Um, so it's almost like that, that field of research that would have occurred for decades has been missing, but we now get to apply all of the sort of latest technologies to this to study in this area, so um, hopefully that should speed things up uh, in terms of the development of, of new medicines.
0: Yeah, that's such fascinating. Just kind of having this understanding of this history of what is drug development, how does it work, and now seeing that applied to psychedelics is is really interesting. So, before finding your way to Silo, did you always know that you wanted to work in in drug discovery, or what guided you into that type of interest in the field?
1: Yeah, I had a pretty strong interest in. Um, in biologically active molecules from quite a young age, I would say. I'd always been curious. I'd read a lot of sort of drug history, and I was curious about, especially molecules that can change consciousness, molecules that can change our view of the world. That sort of always fascinated me from the time I learned about um, Albert Hoffman and the sort of accidental discovery of LSD. You know, how is it that you can take this, you know, tenth of a milligram of a material that can profoundly alter your view of the world? It's it's quite an interesting concept, and there aren't many drugs that can do that. You know, it's a pretty unusual class of drugs. Uh, But really... By the time I was sort of getting into my undergraduate studies um you know discovered medicinal chemistry as a field, which is this interesting intersection between chemistry and pharmacology so it's so not all chemistry but just sort of the chemistry around bioactive molecules um and it's it's something that I wanted to work on um, and develop new medicines because of the impact that you can have so you know if you think about some of the um the most useful drugs that have been developed it's it's an area where you know you can dedicate your life to um, developing something that helps people on on a very large scale. So, thinking about things like, you know, modern antibiotics that, that have helped literally billions of people, you know, that, that may otherwise have, have died or, or lived very poor lives. Um, so, there aren't many areas of science where you can have such a large impact. And, and I think that's sort of been a theme for a lot of my career. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm sort of also interested in, in the old protein space, in climate tech and all these other things where, you know, very clever people are working to have impact, not just uh, you know, immediately and in their local communities, which is super important too. But but really scalable solutions to things that solve you know solve actual real problems, not just whether I can get food delivered you know to my door in ten minutes from a takeaway joint. Like I'm, I'm really interested in these problems that are you know that are kind of tough and that that take a, some clever people to solve and actually have real positive impact on people's lives.
0: Yeah, I like how you f- you frame that. Really, uh, not just kind of these uh, short term impacts, but something that has. An overarching long term societal impact, you know, Mm -hmm. cultural and societal impact, which is really important. You know, you mentioned about being interested in uh, compounds that alter states of consciousness before you even entered your undergraduate. How did you find out about Albert Hoffman? you know, (laughs) I didn't find out about until like my 20s. That's why I'm like, how does someone stumble upon this, you know, earlier in life?
1: Well, well, like like all good things in life, it was fairly accidental. So I'm of the age um, where in Australia, at least the internet was not broadly rolled out as I was sort of a teenager. Um, And I can actually very clearly remember that sort of distinction where sort of People whose parents were sort of business leaders in the community started to have regular internet access available. So there was this sort of period of my younger life where um, you know I was reading a lot of books. I was really interested in sort of Buddhist philosophy for quite a while. There, um, really interested in consciousness and meditation and, and just um, altered states of consciousness. Generally, um, you know, reading a lot of a lot of books in psychology, Charles Tart and others, just getting really interested in this area. Then you know, it's almost impossible to, you know, not become aware of psychedelics at some point if you're reading that space. Um, But I didn't have access to the internet. So I'd heard about this guy, Timothy Leary, and and kind of the counterculture in the 60s and LSD led me to Albert Hoffman. And and I remember asking my mom about um, Timothy Leary and her response was – you know she 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 was around in the sixties obviously, and I, I asked her what she knew about Timothy Leary and she's like, oh he's you know isn't he that idiot who blew his brains out on acid and ended up in a wheelchair and, and that was that was her response, which seemed to me a little bit um you know contrasting to what else I'd read the little bit that I'd read so I made a bit of an effort to get online and try to learn what I could and found out you know basically that was entirely wrong and she was completely misinformed and it was one of those really um sort of paradigm shifting moments where I realized that I probably really couldn't trust a lot of what my parents said (laughs) probably a lot of it was highly inaccurate and maybe just plain wrong so um yeah that set me on this this really um solid path to sort of independent research and, and seeing what I could learn from from books and from formal education and from elsewhere
0: well, that's quite the way to get into it. Um, I, I have to admit, I'm not sure how many teenagers I know that would read about Buddhism and, <laughs> and find their way through that path, right? Um, so it's really interesting. Um, but I think it's also maybe a common factor sometimes when we question our parents and say, like, what do you know about this? And then you get yeah. this extraneous story that you are that you find out later is, you know, just super stretched and um, – you know, not accurate at all. And then it makes you want to question everything that they ever yeah. present to you in life. Um I, I which think makes probably, us more curious.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a very common experience for a lot of people, but it's 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 quite jarring, you know, the first couple of times it happens on a on a big topic to find out, you know, these these people you've relied on for so much of your information might actually be not super well informed themselves.
0: Yeah. And then you become adult your, yourself and you realize <laughs> that adults never know what adult is anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: So that's, that's super interesting. All right. So we, we kind of an, I have an idea here of, you know, what got you interested in consciousness and and even drug development. So um, let's kind of dive deeper into your journey, I guess, the academic journey at this point. So you're interested in, in, you know, compounds, you're interested in different states of consciousness. You learn about Timothy Leary, you learn about Albert Hoffman. Um you know what's your academic journey look like? So you did an undergraduate, and then you you did a PhD, which we can break that down a little bit later. But you know, how did you start that process? What did you study in your undergraduate, and how did you get there?
1: Yeah, that's that's sort of an, an interesting one as well on, on reflection. So I actually, uh, you know, which might be relevant to this audience, because I'd come to this field, the psychedelics field more generally, out of an interest in sort of plant medicine. Um, you know, reading a lot of Richard Evan Schultz and others. I, I, of course, wanted to be like an ethnobotanist. I was like, oh, this, this would be an amazing area. I actually had my major selectors, botany and mycology, because I'm like, well, I can learn about sort of plants and fungi, and that'll be a great way to learn about all these bioactive molecules. Um, and then I took um, my sort of first year chemistry course. You know, We do a sort of gen chem here for the first semester of, of your first year of university, and uh, which you know didn't didn't really excite me. There were some interesting things in there on the sort of um, quantum chemistry side of things that I thought were pretty cool. That explained um, you know some interesting aspects of our world. Uh, but I took organic chemistry for the first time in my second semester of that year and, and just kind of fell in love with it. I was like, this is super cool. Not too much mathematics at, at a superficial level. You kind of get to draw pretty pictures and think about why things react. Uh, and and more importantly, you could actually what i liked is that you could understand a lot of chemical reactivity from first principles if you sort of understand um that you know electrons want to do certain things that's kind of all you need to know to understand a lot of chemical reactivity you don't have to rote learn it which sort of really appealed to me and um, organic chemistry is often taught as this sort of rote system you know a plus b gives you c and actually it's not a very effective way to teach it um so yeah i got really interested in organic chemistry uh realized that actually this is this pretty neat area where not only can you understand why certain molecules are bioactive, um, you can actually design your own new molecules by making these systematic and and sort of rational changes. So that really appealed to me as well, this sort of um, creative angle of things. Um, So, yeah, I ended up sort of continuing down that rabbit hole, uh, discovered pharmacology as a pretty direct result of that, discovered that there was this field called medicinal chemistry, which is the sort of study and design of new drugs and it was a combination of, of chemistry and pharmacology, so they became my majors. Um, I, I did an honors year, which was my first exposure to research, and just really loved it. You know, the idea that you can take a problem, um, come up with a, a molecule to solve a problem, and design something that's never existed before in the universe. You know, f- go from an idea in your brain, draw it out on paper, and then actually manufacture some of it in your hands in a small amount, which is, is pretty neat. Um, so I did a PhD in medicinal chemistry, and my PhD was on uh, a pretty interesting class of amines, these sort of um, cage molecules, so polycarbocyclic amines, um, and we were looking at them for a receptor called the sigma-1 receptor, so trying to understand what Molecular properties drive activity at sigma one, so sigma one is an interesting target. That's involved in um, it's, it's involved in almost everything. It's involved in a lot of psychiatric illnesses. A lot of approved drugs target sigma one, but not selectively. So we don't have a really good understanding of precisely what it's involved in. It just seems to be common in a lot of different drug activity and um, and brain diseases. So did a really interesting PhD there, but, uh, you know, learned an enormous amount and then decided that I wanted to do a postdoc because um, at that stage in my life, I just kind of wanted to be a professor. It seemed like the most fun job in the world. You get to just sort of, you know, train scientists and, and play around in the lab all day. Uh, so I was pursuing postdoc opportunities in the U.S. and, and other places, but most of the U.S., Um, and had at that stage learned about sort of Shulgin's work, knew of Dave Nichols and a few others. Um, Richard Glennon, who's a a professor of VCU, who's done a lot of work studying um, stimulants and and psychedelics, uh, was in my network because he'd examined my thesis. So I, you know, reached out to him about applying for a Fulbright scholarship. And at that stage, you know, the the Fulbright committee was um, not too bullish on on psychedelics. Uh, You know, Fulbright's all about sort of social impact. And it was still, this is 10 years ago now, more um, it's. it was still a pretty, it goes to show you how sort of a taboo field it still was. There was literally a handful of academic labs around the world doing serious work in this space on the chemistry front. Um, and so I just kind of wrote that off. I, I started getting into other areas. I got into radiochemistry. So um, the development of new radio traces for imaging inflammation of the brain. Um, and then that took me to Stanford on a postdoc. So um, I had developed um, a, a Production method for this radio tracer that was being used to look at um, inflammation associated with dementia and other things, and they wanted to use that at some of the hospitals at and clinics at Stanford. Um, so it was a pretty natural network there to start working with a, a particular scientist at Stanford who was doing some of this work, and then went to Stanford and just had a ball, sort of you know, sort of like intellectual Disneyland. So I stayed there for quite a few years, working with sort of Nobel laureates, doing some really fun work um, on in structural biology, doing quite a bit of drug development. Um, worked with the Medicinal Chemistry Knowledge Centre there at ChemH, which was just amazing. You know, people who've actually had approved drugs to market, sort of training you on on how this works in the real world and and in an academic setting. So, um, yeah, I was having an absolute blast and then got recruited back to Australia um, in my sort of, had I not done this sort of final year at Stanford and learned all this really cool stuff about biotech and and entrepreneurship and startups, um, I probably would have Love to come back to Australia and just be an academic, um, but when I was recruited back for this role, it sort of wasn't was no longer my dream job by that point. So, um, came back here, developing um, new anti epileptic agents inspired by molecules found in cannabis, and um, did that for a few years. But between the pandemic and sort of just you know losing a bit of a bit of love for um, the academic life and, and basically my conception of what academic life was versus the reality, um, decided I needed to, to move out and do something else.
0: That's quite the journey. Um, and I feel like I have lots of questions about it. So we'll kind of we'll kind of break parts of it down here. Um, first, I wanna kinda talk about the structure of education. I know here in the United States, like uh it's common for people to do an undergraduate and then do a master's and then do a PhD, and maybe sometimes they go out into the world and get a big person job and sometimes they go out and do a postdoc instead or or something like that. Um you know, is it common in Australia to follow a same pattern or what does that educational pattern look like?
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty common for people to go into university. They might take a, a year or two off after high school and, and, uh, Australia is quite geographically isolated from the rest of the world, so we have this sort of concept of like a gap year, which is um, when I was living in the US, I found out is, is definitely much less common there. <laughs> um, so this seems to be a sort of uniquely Australian thing where it's it's quite common. I would say um, in that you'll you'll meet a bunch of people who've done it, but people often after school will take off a year and just travel the world for a bit and um, go on a bit of a journey, and and um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a very common experience. Um, and then a lot of other people will just go straight into the workforce or pursue undergraduate degrees directly from school. So um, I, I went straight to uni, um, to, to college, and did an undergraduate degree. Um, and then from there, it's, you know, people will either get a job in, if you're a scientist, um, in terms of your undergrad training, um, you'll get a job in the scientific industry here or, you know, other other degrees, uh, sort of first professional degrees to become pharmacists, lawyers. Um, or you might get a job with a big corporate, depending on, on what you've studied. Um, but in terms of the path to a PhD, um, usually you wrap up your undergraduate degree, which is three years. Um, often you'll do an honours year, which is a fourth year by research. With a, It's sort of like a mini master's. So you'll, you'll do a year of, um, of research and write a small thesis. Uh, and then you pretty typically go into a PhD from there. So, um, yeah, there's no formal requirement to do a master's or anything else. Um, often you'll apply for a scholarship, government funded otherwise, and then jump right into a PhD. And the PhDs here are a little bit shorter than the US. We don't do the um, the year of rotation. That's pretty common in f- the first year of a PhD in the United States. Uh, but, you know, the whole degree is about three and a half years in terms of the um, allocation of funding. But in reality, most people typically take sort of four or four and a half to actually finish it. So there's there's three and a half years of funding allowed. Um, and then you can apply for sort of extensions and additional funding from there. So it's a little bit shorter than um, than North American programs, I would say.
0: All right. I appreciate that explanation, because it's very, very different in the United States. So <laughs> yes. overall, like, how many years did it take you to, to go through, I guess, the undergraduate and the PhD before the postdoc?
1: Uh my I, I'm I was a bit um a bit slacker than other people I guess. You know, I I definitely took longer to write up than I needed to, and that was because um, there was no real motivation, personally, for me to actually submit my PhD thesis. I'd I'd done the work, I'd published a bunch of papers, um, I was already working, uh, doing other things by the time it it came to sort of writing up, so I was sort of doing it around full-time work and and, and other things. Um, So, I took a little bit longer than usual, but I'd say for me, it was probably closer to sort of eight and a half years or so from the time I started my uh, my first year of undergrad um, definitely could have been done in, in six months, or maybe even twelve months shorter than that. Uh, but I, yeah, I really dragged it out at the end there for no good reason. Um, you know, I was doing research already by that stage prior to my thesis being submitted um, in a really, really great lab here, and and just having a lot of fun doing the research is what I wanted to do anyway. Not not sit around all day, you know, writing many, many pages of a thesis that three people will review and examine. <laughs>
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. Like, yo, I'm so jealous right now. (laughs) You're writing a thesis at the
1: moment?
0: Yeah. I've been writing my dissertation. Like just like I spent literally just spent the whole weekend, like writing 51 pages of of (laughs) one chapter, one out of like multiple chapters. And then, and then you're telling me, like you finished like your whole before postdoc, like eight, eight and a half years. And I'm like on year 12 right now. And I'm just like, I need to get out the door.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very different in every program. I've I've realised. Um, yeah, you know, and, and people obviously, PhDs are kind of a funny thing because it's not you know you're not you're not a, a new adult with no responsibilities. Often people come to them in in later stages of life, or you're already you know deep into your mid twenties. Like you have other things going on. You know, people have families sometimes, kids. They've had to move around for various reasons. So, yeah, it's it's not surprising to me that you know there's there's a whole spectrum of of time to complete for for PhD candidates. I would say.
0: Yeah, there there really is. It's in and it's it's really diverse too. Because like in social sciences, I just find in general like those programs, at least here in the United States, are much much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, like my master's program alone was like three years, and All my right. neighbor who did nanotechnology was done in twelve months. And I was just <laughs> like, is this normal? Like. Yeah. Um, So it's really interesting to see that not just diversity, like, uh, you know, in educational systems, you know, in different countries, but also between departments and programs. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important for our listeners to hear and understand that, like, you know, there's one, there's a diversity of options to choose from. And two, there's a diversity of options of what that can look like. There's no right or wrong way. just kind of whatever works for you, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's really important that you sort of take stock of your situation. Think about, w- which it's very it's very easy to forget why you're doing a PhD, um, but it's, it's pretty good to take a, a period out and just sort of reflect on, you know, what what are the, what were your motivations for getting into it? Why are you actually doing it? Um, and, you know, I think there's a, a risk for a lot of people that like that, you know, the thesis or the, like the dissertation or the completion or something itself becomes the goal. And I remember... Um, having a really interesting conversation with a professor at the university of Sydney in an elevator one day when I, you know, I was super excited. My thesis was finally written up. I'm like, yeah, I'm about to submit it, you know, a bit of a celebration. And he just, he just kind of shrugged and he was like, yeah, so what, what are you doing next? <laughs> He's like, really, a PhD is just is just a ticket to open up your world to be able to do all sorts of other things. So, so you know, why did you get the PhD? What do you want to do with it? <laughs> and I was like, oh, at that stage, look at various postdocs, not very seriously. And I'm like, oh, that's a that's a great point, actually. <laughs> why why do I spend all this time doing this thing, learning all these skills?
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's something really important to think about. And yeah, now I'm sitting here being like, I'm supposed to graduate in a few months. <laughs> and I'm like, and then what am I going to do? And
1: what? <laughs> yep.
0: It's not like the end of the the road. Like there's more to it. I just I haven't figured out what that is yet. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I think people forget that a PhD is not a goal in and of itself. It's it's a. It really is just a ticket to to create opportunities for yourself to do other really interesting things.
0: Yeah, and so for you, that other interesting thing was a was a postdoc.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I remember quite clearly from my PhD. um, This was one of one of the reasons I really wanted a career in science was because it was a way to you know didn't appreciate there are many other areas of sort of business and, and other studies that would also take you overseas, but I, I really did want to go and work and live somewhere else for a period. Um, you know, and I grew up reading all of the amazing science coming out of, you know, top tier U.S. universities and all the, the cool startups and things there. Um, so I sort of had the U.S. Um, in mind um, between the sort of U.S. US and Europe. I think I'd also looked at a scholarship in Japan. Um, but yeah, the, the U.S. Did, did appeal to me for sure. It's sort of where a lot of the most cutting edge science is being done um, generally. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, it was always a pretty, pretty firm goal. It was an easy way to, to travel and to, you know, have a, a really interesting cultural experience, do some super cool work somewhere else. And um, yeah, that was always a, a sort of goal of mine early on.
0: It's really cool how it worked out like that. And it sounds like you had an incredibly fun time doing all of it too.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My PhD was a lot of fun, made a lot of great friends, had a a really good supervision um, throughout, which is is also not not something that everyone always has. Um, Have been super fortunate to have a lot of really great mentors. Um, And I think if you, you know, the world will throw back to you sort of – whatever sort of attitude you approach it with. So I was I was always sort of super driven, had a lot of initiative and sort of knew what I wanted to do. And, and when you approach the world that way, um, often you'll get a lot of good mentorship in return, just sort of incidentally, it seems to be the way things work. So yeah, I've been really fortunate to have some um, s- some pretty challenging mentors as well, mentors or bosses, but also some, some really, really great ones.
0: Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about that. Um, you know, were there any particular mentors that either really challenged you and helped you grow or that were just incredibly supportive and like, you know, what did they look like and and how did they, I would say support you or help you, but challenging can sometimes be support and growth too. But you know, how did they really help to your development into, you know, what you're doing now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, when you're in the middle of some really challenging situations, it can be kind of hard to appreciate it. But, you know, these days I, I try to take a sort of more stoic view of things. And um, generally, I would say I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, so, so my PhD supervisor um, was a guy named Professor Michael Cassio at the University of Sydney. Um, you know, really good medicinal chemist in the department. Um, you know, not purely academic, had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak as well um, and and provided good training. You know, had great postdocs training me in his lab. Um, so that was just a really great training opportunity. Uh And and great for that stage of my career. And this is something else that I've sort of come to appreciate is that, you know, there's no singular mentor that's going to serve you for sort of everything you want to do. You need to find a sort of whole cohort of different mentors for different things. And some of those will be good for one stage of your career and and not for others. And that's fine. Um, So, I'd say, yeah, Michael Cassie was a great, uh, great mentor for my PhD. Uh, Then, you know, I, I moved over to, to Stanford and had a little bit of a challenging time there um, for a couple of years. You know, it's, it's obviously a, a pretty big cultural shift. It's a pretty competitive place. You know, you know it's, it's interesting and challenging to go into a room and, and always feel like you're the, the dumbest person in the room. It's just full of a lot of really clever people. Um, so I'd say I did a lot of learning about, you know, how to operate in that environment. Um, you know, Stanford's got a really great support for its its postdocs via um, the Office of Postdoctoral Affairs uh, and just had, yeah, learn a lot. I wouldn't say... For my first couple of years at Stanford, at least, I'd say I learned far more sort of culturally and and in terms of career and, and um, professionalism in the workplace than, than on the science front. Um, and then that sort of transitioned back sort of midway through there. So I, I moved labs a few times um, and some of those labs were phenomenal. So, so I got to work with really great people. Um, another Australian postdoc um, named Kavya Kumar, who was working in Brian Kabilka's lab, um, working as a really, really tight unit with her and Naomi Lateraka looking at um, how to understand how some of these molecules that... Uh, bind to the um, main target of, of drugs and cannabis, the cannabinoid receptors, how they work at sort of an atomic level. So um, that was super fun. And then obviously, yeah, my final year there working with, uh, with ChemH, so with a guy named Mark Smith, who's running this MedChem Knowledge Center. He's um, a serial entrepreneur himself. He's a Roche veteran, um, you know, more, more sort of drive than almost anyone I'd work with, but also just a, a phenomenal mentor, like really wants to see everyone who works with him succeed. Um, and he'll give you a lot of time if, if you show that you've got, got drive and you put in a lot of effort. Uh, the other academic lead on that project was a guy named uh, Professor Edgar Engelman. So he's the founder of the Stanford Blood Centre, a really phenomenal um, immunologist, sort of broadly working in the oncology space, uh, but also the founder of a, a venture capital firm in Palo Alto many years ago, um, very savvy entrepreneur on the, on the commercial side as well. So, yeah, that was just a, a pretty unparalleled experience to be able to work with, yeah, just such brilliant people and, and learn how drug development actually works in the real world. It was, it was a really good time.
0: There's so many incredible things that you, you know, just said in that response. One of them being um, this idea that you've worked with the diversity of people at different stages and how, you know, you can recognize that certain people were instrumental in certain stages and maybe not so much in others. And I think that's, that's really key to kind of think about for our listeners is kind of recognizing, you know, when are those mentors like instrumental to them and then maybe um you know playing on other mentors for their strengths in other ways when they need support in different ways which is really interesting and I think um something else that really sticks out to me is that idea of like (laughs) and for some reason I just felt so personal to me when you said it about like when you walk into a room of like really intelligent people and you realize like you're like the dumbest person in the room and how intimidating that can be like like I felt that in my soul a little bit um (laughs) Um And it just it makes me think a lot about um I teach at the university that I also attend, but I have students that come to me all the time that are undergraduates and one of their biggest fears is going to graduate school and where they are like the dumbest person in the room. And now that I've gone and been that person multiple times over and over and over again, like I realized, like, if anything, that's one of the best positions to be in mm-hmm. because, you know, there's. There's no other option but to learn from the people around you and to and to kind of take that moment and be a sponge and absorb all the information and knowledge and skills and, you know, and everything that they can get from. So I think those are two really big points that um, that come out of what you said there. And I think our listeners will hopefully <laughs> find that very useful and and something um, that we haven't seen come out of other conversations that we've had so far. So that's incredibly insightful.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good general one for anyone doing especially sort of higher level degrees, um, advanced studies of any kind is, yeah, don't, don't expect that, you know, your PhD supervisor, for example, is, is going to be your sole port of call for for challenges you'll run into or advice or guidance. Like it's super important to, um, just for more general career longevity as well, build out your networks, you know, whilst you're at grad school, like find, find multiple mentors, find mentors at other universities. Like there are people, um, generally people are quite generous with their time, people do want to People do want to help more, you know, more junior trainees who are seeking help. You know, most people um, are actually very generous with their time in that sense. So, I'd say, yeah, don't don't rely on any one, you know, one person to be your sole mentor. It's, um, it's definitely counterproductive.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, an essential piece of advice, you know. We all have different skills and we all have different knowledge mm. sets, so why rely on one person to you know, guide you through your academic career and beyond.
1: <laughs> and and that's, that's another important point about being, you know, being the, the dumbest person in the room is, is the more people you work with, you realize actually, sure, there are absolute sort of polymaths out there who just seem to know kind of everything on every topic. But, you know, th- those people are exceedingly rare. Most people actually have very deep in, in academic fields, have very deep domain expertise in in one particular area. Um and if you talk to them on that topic, of course, you know, it's very clear that they know kind of everything there is to know about it. And what's really surprising at, at Stanford is once you get people away from the area in which they're experts, um, how how quickly that sort of general knowledge drops off in some cases. There are a lot of very clever people there, um, but there are also people who, who only know their sort of domain in an extremely um, narrow way. So... Um, yeah everyone has has limits to their knowledge they they sort of know what they know and there's huge amounts of of stuff they don't know uh, and understanding where those limits are for yourself and for others is also super important and can sort of remove some of that sort of imposter syndrome as well
0: mm, yeah yeah absolutely and I think that's something um labeling that idea of imposter syndrome is something to recognize that we all feel and we all go through too in academia uh, and that's totally normal
1: <laughs> yep yep. <laughs> Yeah, in um, fact, if that, you don't have imposter syndrome, it, it may be sort of a, a Dunning-Kruger effect, you know. So it, it's a good yes. thing; it's a good sign that you have a bit of imposter syndrome at all times.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. You give some great advice on kind of, you know, how to how to work through that and know that it's okay, and um, so it's very useful. Um, so we talked about mentors. Were there any other experiences or skills or resources? that were instrumental in your academic journey into contributing to even your postdoc or or afterwards in the work that you do with uh, Silo?
1: Um, yeah, I'd say like the network effect is, is super important and something that I, I didn't consider as a PhD student, but, you know, building out these networks um, by whatever means are available to you is, is super important. And I was always very proactive on that. Um, living in the Bay, obviously, it was it was pretty easy to find a lot of really interesting people to talk to and, and people love to talk about what they do. Um, So it was quite easy to to build a network there. Um, You know, I I would do podcasts occasionally I'd meet up with other scientists in social situations beyond conferences and things if, if they were working on something that I thought was interesting just reaching out and, um, and you know saying I wanted to meet up and have a chat um, that led to some really sort of fruitful collaborations you know a, a guy named Professor Roy Girona um, at UCSF who was doing some really interesting toxicology work in the cannabinoid space that I was interested in so I just reached out to him cold emailed him and he was like you know had a quick look at me online could see that I was you know a real person and we ended up meeting up for a pizza and a beer and, and it kicked off a, a you know really interesting Area of work that that led to some good publications and some decent impact. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't be afraid to reach out to people even if they're sort of more senior um, than you. And I, I'd sort of advocate for things like Twitter in this sense, except maybe until recently, um, Twitter's definitely sort of lost its way. But early on for me, that was that was a pretty great equalizer. So, uh, you know, when, when I started using Twitter, which is probably almost ten years ago now, eight years ago, uh, there are people who will respond to you on Twitter that are you know very esteemed professors and things at places like stanford who probably would never respond to an email and it's just the nature of the platform like they don't really want to be on their emails anyways but they're happy to jump onto a comment and um yeah i've had some pretty good success reaching out to people that way but the the importance of network yeah, is is really pretty hard to overstate and it applies to like you know both your personal life and your professional life um you're essentially all of the opportunities that are available to you generally will, will often come from, you know, the sort of diversity and strengths of your network. So that's something that, that I definitely didn't appreciate as a PhD student, that I'd, I'd always encourage my my trainees to to build networks. And I, I sort of advocate for them on that front as well, um, connecting them with various academics, take sort of leadership of projects and establish those collaborations and grow them. So I think those sort of soft skills are also super important in, in science and elsewhere.
0: Yes, to so many of parts of that. Um One, building the network. I I have to say it's definitely like one of the number one pieces of advice that we get for people is building your network. But I think something special that you say about it is thinking about what does building your network look like? And and like you mentioned, you use Twitter, um, but there's all kinds of other social media platforms. There's all kinds of other platforms and ways to connect. And I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's just me. I'm definitely the type of person who checks my email like 24-7. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't mean that everyone else does. It doesn't mean that maybe they're, they'd rather, you know, communicate over social media, like, especially social media. When you think about that type of communication, like it's not this formal like, hello, so-and-so. Thank you for taking the time to read my email. You know, um, it's a much more kind of human connection mm. um, that people might feel more comfortable in building their network in that way and, and getting, um, you know, making, building those connections and things. Um, so I think that's a really unique part of what does networking look like? What does building those, those structures look like, which is really fascinating. Um, it also makes me think about as social media progresses, like what are going to be some of those new ways to connect and and meet other people and, and do that, which is something interesting to think about.
1: I like this idea. I haven't dabbled in it myself yet, but people are already looking for sort of Twitter replacements. It's obviously got a number of issues, um, quite serious issues, it sounds like. But people are already looking at things like Mastodon, and, and I like this idea that they're sort of more curated communities. So Twitter's pretty. Twitter has a number of subcommunities within it. You know, if you're into toxicology, there's a whole community there. Pharmacology, there's a community. Any sort of area of academic science, you know, chem Twitter exists. These these things definitely exist as subcommunities, and Mastodon seems to be. Um, I have, haven't had a play around it yet, but seems to be taking that idea. Um, and decentralizing things on on independent servers but where the communities will actually be built around these particular topics Um, you know obviously reddit's got reddit's done very well at building out community mostly sort of non-technical but but it's done pretty well at building out these communities so i think i don't think social media will disappear but hopefully some of the more toxic elements of it can disappear as we build something that resembles sort of um you know local community more more classically
0: yeah it's definitely something to watch out for and um and you know, even even me and you, as we continue to build our networks and stuff, like looking out on like what's new on the frontier of mm-hmm. of a way to connect with people, uh, definitely something to think through. Um, which I feel like as I get older, technology gets harder. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's, that's also that's me. that's a pretty natural consequence of aging, I, I think. Okay. Unless you unless you really dedicate a lot of time to staying on top of all of it, I'm, I already feel myself falling behind as well. It's it's frustrating.
0: I know. I like. I had to have like my nieces. Like, I don't. I still don't understand TikTok. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I just. I'm like, what do you do?
1: (laughs) I'm actually quite happy not to understand TikTok. That's one where I I don't feel like I really need to spend a whole lot of time there.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's got its uses. (laughs) Yeah, I have students that come into classroom all the time and they're like, "Did you see this on trending on TikTok?" And I'm like, (laughs) "You're using words I don't understand." (laughs) That's so. That's interesting, but it's important understanding different. You know, community building and technology around it to be able to utilize that in um, advancing your career and and even in within academia and all that, all of that great stuff. Um, so super useful. Um, I feel like I had something else, and I just that's all right. We can move on. Um, so uh, as you've gone through your journey, I imagine that you've you know faced multiple challenges along the way. But are there any challenges that really stick out to you that were? Um, Instrumental in helping you kind of grow and develop into, you know, where you are now, and and what were they, and how did you overcome those challenges?
1: Yeah, definitely had um, I've had a, quite a few challenges, I would say, in my career, and um, a lot of those were around this this again, this sort of idea of mentorship, and you know, realizing that maybe um, whoever sort of formally is designated as your mentor in some situations may not actually be a very good fit for you, and so that's uh, really just forced me to get. Um, a little bit lateral in my thinking to find other people and to build out these networks. So that's, yeah, again, the network thing is, is super important. Um, you know, working for for the wrong person or with the wrong person or team um, can be pretty detrimental to your, I'm sure many, many of your listeners will, um, will understand, but it can be very detrimental to your mental health, um, you know, to, to your productivity and just, you know, to your sort of career progression overall. So sort of identifying very early on, um, you know, Mentors and others in, in a team situation who are not particularly helpful and thinking about uh, creative strategies for for circumventing that can be pretty important and sometimes it's it's as dramatic as you know quitting a job and, and moving on to the next thing um, other times it can be just sort of bringing in additional mentors to sort of compensate for some of the deficits um, uh, you know with a, a particular mentor so um, and I use mentor here as you know to, to mean boss, it can be an academic supervisor, it could be a boss, it could be anything. Um, but yeah i 'd say uh, probably nothing i 'd want to say too specifically about about particular challenges here um, you know for fear of of offending anyone who might be involved um, but yeah i've definitely definitely been through a few pretty challenging situations uh, professionally and, and in my personal life in the last few years um, and yeah I, I think the main thing is is just to try and do whatever you can to sort of reframe things in a sort of stoic way and realize that you know every every negative situation is an opportunity for learning. Um, and really, it's this—it's definitely very common in, in the startup world and in, in entrepreneurial circles generally. Um, this sort of idea of resilience and persistence—you um, know, there's this this Naval quote that um, startups don't die when they run out of money; they die when founders run out of energy. And I feel like that's that's something that really resonates with me because it's it's absolutely true. You know, I've companies have a runway, but if you need to raise more capital, um, you know, the ability to do the difference between doing that and not doing that is often your, just your resilience and and persistence. And that's, that's true in academic life. It's true in, in business as well, I think. So yeah, tenacity and resilience are definitely like super, super crucial traits. You know, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of talk in recent years about this concept of grit and, and that's really sort of what it's about. That's often what separates people who ultimately achieve success from those who don't. So it's, you know, realizing that, you know, there's nothing unique or special about you. Everyone has very challenging experiences and it's how you deal with them that really sort of defines you as a person and, and probably predicts your ultimate success.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's honestly some incredibly beautiful advice. I would have to say, Um, you know, especially because I I know, I'm sure like every one of our listeners as they're, you know, tuning into this, uh, they're probably just like, oh, yeah, I'm going through X, I'm going through Z, this happened, this happened, this happened, you know. Um, But really, the ability to overcome and push through and keep going is is where the success happens. It's where the growth happens, um, which is something important and profoundly beautiful and difficult and challenging all at the same time
1: it's easier said than done and you know if you're if you're deep in it um you know i'm sure there are many of your listeners that have had you know probably depression afflicts a huge proportion of the population i'm sure that people have been super depressed um it can be very hard to like pull yourself out of those sorts of holes but you know the main thing is is you know find support wherever you can and And something that can be quite useful in very challenging situations is just try something different, you know, it doesn't have to be the right thing, just do something differently. Um, If you feel like you're in a bit of a rut or you're stuck or you're having a a challenging sort of situation in life, um, the worst thing to do is probably just to stay there stuck. (laughs) You know, just just try try anything, go do something else, like it'll it'll definitely set you on the right course to sort of um, improving things for yourself.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a good piece of advice. You know, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're not going to get a different result. If you yep. if you at least try something different, if that doesn't work, you can try something different. You exactly. just keep trying something different until you exactly. find something that works. <laughs> yep. All right. So let's kind of move on to the next part of your journey. So you have this postdoc, you're having a great time, and then you end up moving back to Australia can you talk a little bit about this transition from the academic world and your postdoc at, at Stanford and eventually finding your way to Silo?
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, I mentioned I was recruited back to Australia to, to run this academic lab, which, you know, probably in 2016 even was probably my dream career. Um, and then by 2017, when I, my last year at Stanford, I'd, I'd sort of realized that actually there was this other thing that I wanted to do that was, you know, in Private companies, startups, biotech entrepreneurship, where you can actually have have some serious impact on on patients' lives, uh, more so than an academic career, or more easily. Um, so yeah, I came back to this academic gig, and, and it was going pretty well. I put a lot of um, a lot of effort into it. I, I had, you know. I had students who I think enjoyed themselves as sort of a measure of, of my own success I had students who like really really liked working in the group um, I focused you know because I'd had such challenging experiences myself in for a few years of my postdoc um, I was always like a big advocate for for my students making sure that they were doing things like you know getting publications and and yeah really just sort of driving them to to achieve um, achieve their best. Uh, but then, yeah, COVID kind of just really soured everything a little bit. We, we moved to like teaching online um, and I'm sure everyone who's, who's had an academic position the last few years can um, can resonate with this. But, you know, just giving a lecture with you know, 30, 40, 50 students where all the cameras are off and, you know, you, you just feel like you're talking talking to no one, looking at this blank screen. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty disheartening, pretty disconcerting. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. In Sydney, I don't know how it was, Um, in in other parts of the US, I know there was some pretty serious and and brief lockdowns. We sort of had this ongoing cycle of lockdowns with each each wave. Um, So, you know, for about two years on and off, we were sort of um, remote working or, or in various forms of lockdown. So it became, yeah, just a really pretty rough time for everyone. I don't think the students were having a very good time. You know, I don't think a lot of the academics were having a very good time. Um, and so at that stage, I'd already started thinking about about what to do next, and um, COVID played into that. I was looking at, at jobs in the US again because it was a little bit more open, um, yeah. And just think about what I wanted to do beyond the academic world, um, yeah. So so I met Josh at just the right time, as I mentioned, had lost this friend to suicide um, right before that, and it, you know that just sort of really crystallized things for me that this is uh, this is an interesting area that I'd. I'd been fascinated by for a long time, had never had the opportunity to, to work informally um, and recognizing that, you know, I, I had some fairly unique skills that I could bring to bear on this problem and that, you know, there probably won't be this opportunity again. So we're, we're right at the beginning now um, of, of this sort of psychedelic renaissance. Um, there'll probably be a bit of a hype cycle. You know, a lot of the the findings that are preliminary now will, will turn out not to be as, as generalizable as people hope. And there'll be a bit of a dip and then, you know, a sort of plateau to a, a sort of steady state of um you know the actual value of of psychedelics in in society so yeah it just seemed like a a really natural move for me um i I was a little bit concerned you know obviously like a lot of government jobs academic positions are are pretty cushy here in australia you you know the accountability is pretty low um you know you get to do you have quite a lot of freedom generally um the salaries are good here um definitely better than the US salaries are good our superannuation with universities which is sort of like your 401k your retirement savings plans uh, are very generous with universities so yeah most of my concerns were sort of leaving that behind jumping into this entirely new thing that I had you know no real formal experience doing except as a a later operator in some of these startups that that formed from work that I'd done at Stanford Um, so yeah it was definitely yeah definitely a gamble Um, but I, I was able to sort of rationalize it um I remember thinking that sort of academic jobs will always be there. Um, this opportunity probably won't come up again, and even if it fails, you know the amount that you have, the amount that I would have learned doing something entirely new compared to just doing the same academic thing for another few years um, would have been far more valuable long term. So it was, it was a pretty easy decision in that sense.
0: I like and I appreciate how you kind of talk about justification of you know taking this huge risk, you know, moving into something new, leaving. Uh, you know, I think in like American culture, we we think about our jobs in this way of like financial stability and like, you know, like how you describe it as this cushiness, like you have everything you need and you don't have to have, be worried about anything, you know? Um, so leaving where you were and, and trying something new is incredibly risky, but I like kind of this thought process that you present of being like, well, academia is always going to be there. If it doesn't work out, like you just go back, you know, but this opportunity, it's, it's here and it's now and it's not going to come back again. So it's either jump on the boat or miss it, you know? Yeah. Um. So that's really, that's really interesting. So how did this, you kind of explain how it kind of came to play, but how did you help to build Silo? Like, what did that look like? And, you know, what were some of the, kind of responsibilities that you had in helping to build it and what were some of the adjustments that you had to make in the way that you worked or or thought about things to kind of fit that new position? Mm.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I sort of knew from my time in the Bay, I knew what was involved with startups. I'd, I'd shadowed a couple. Um, I had... My last project at Stanford turned into a company called Tranquist Therapeutics, and I stayed involved with them through some of their raising, um, you know, at a more distant sort of advisory role after developing the science. So, I sort of knew what was involved with startups, but yeah, this a first-time founder situation. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was incredibly helpful having someone like Josh as a co-founder who really knew his way around business structures and business admin. My concern there was that he didn't have, you know, super deep biotech experience, um, and you know he appreciated that I didn't have that much founder experience. He sort of took a chance on me as well, but but realized that I did have this very deep technical experience in this area that's that's relevant here. Um, so it really was like a, a perfect, you know, complementary sort of match. Um, yeah, and as, as we got started, um, you know, it's it's a very weird position to be, you know, asking asked to start a business with someone that you don't know very well. You know, usually you're applying for a job, you're getting letters of recommendation or, or listing someone on a CV. Um, he gave me a couple of references, which were people that he'd started previous businesses with, so I could at least verify that he was real. But you know, that that was pretty helpful actually, because you know, you're being asked to sign legal documents, to set up joint bank accounts, there's liabilities, all these things. You know, he has a super low profile online, so it's hard to find out a lot of info about him. Uh, but you know, there was a, a small moment there where I was like, "Man, maybe this is like some ultimate long con, and <laughs> you know, I'm getting ripped off here." I'd certainly heard some horror stories about about other startups, um, but yeah, you couldn't couldn't ask for a better co-founder. He's you know, he's super transparent, honest, and ethical. Um, yeah, so so getting getting started early on, um, a, a lot of the business administration sort of fell to Josh in terms of setting up. Um, our incorporation documents, um, insurances, all these really sort of routine things that need to be done. I I learned a little bit about that. And then we had to get pretty quickly to deciding what sort of company we were going to be. I I was always interested in sort of drug dev in some sense, but were we going to do you know, formulations of existing psychedelics Were we're going to use synthetic biology to, to develop psychedelics. Um, and, and we decided for various good commercial reasons to stick with this sort of traditional sort of pharmaceutical approach to the space. Um, so then it was on me to develop um, our pipeline, our entire sort of research program. Um, and, and early on, it was it was a lot of work. It was really just Josh and I um, from day one. Um, so we jumped right into raising a pre-seed because that was what we needed to do to actually fund the research and to start paying ourselves salaries. Um, so, it was a lot of pitching, which I'd, I'd done some of, but um, yeah, that, that was kind of interesting too, because I was used to dealing with um, purely biotech VCs and at uh, uh, later stage companies, companies where the technology is already quite developed. So, this was quite a different experience. We were talking to um, a lot of high net worths in Australia, angel syndicates, um, a few VCs here, but not, not necessarily biotech VCs, so a lot of deep tech or, or tech bio VCs as well. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting experience, learned a lot about that um you know and then once we'd raise some capital we had to get straight to building a lab and that involves you know <laughs> building out i mean a lot of it is building out target lists really not understanding what you want building out a target list and just working your way through the list to find something that satisfies your your criteria so we did this for both our advisor group um, our early advisors it was the same thing a lot of phone calls interviews with people reaching out to see if they'd be interested in getting involved and supporting us sort of on this journey um then the same thing for finding a lab space you know and and then a bunch of PR from there to sort of raise profile to to raise a proper seed round. So it's it's really um, it's kind of a twenty four seven gig. There's there's not much downtime, and I was already aware that um, that this would be the situation. And and I kind of like working that way anyway. I get kind of energized by just um, yeah, really throwing myself at a at a problem. So um, yeah, I, I remember thinking, had some experience of this from the Bay with startups there, but I remember hearing a, a really great talk. Um, by a guy named Leon Chen, who is he's the PhD student of a uh, professor Daria Mosley Rosen, who's a really successful Stanford professor and, and entrepreneur. So he be- ended up becoming one of the co-founders of of her first company, Kai Pharmaceuticals. Um, and he said, you know, it's you get this job as a founder and it's, it's not very glamorous, you know, your, your CEO on paper or CSO on paper, but he's like, I was also, you know, um, I was also the office janitor. I was the guy they call in the middle of the night. If, you know, some fire alarm had gone off and I had to race down to the site to check on the lab. So, so it's not really the the founder life is, is not as glamorous as, you know, um, a lot of the, the popular media coverage would have you believe it's like, it's a lot of hard work, you know, grit serves you well. And it's really like, um, you know the way Josh described it to me, which I didn't really appreciate at the time, is that it's it really is sort of like a marriage, you know, and then the company's like a child, so it's this pretty intimate relationship you've got you know you really need to be sort of living in each other's pockets, like there has to be a lot of honesty um, and you're trying to do this really challenging thing that that involves a lot of sort of compromise on both sides and, and a pretty pretty deep connection so um, yeah it's, it's a lot of work but a lot of fun as well, um, and it's it's a little bit easier if you you know you believe you're working on something important.
0: That's really an insightful kind of description um and there's so much there wow there's just so much there to really think through um and i know like psychedelic grad is not a biotech company by <laughs> any means obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like just talking about the fact that like you know when you're when you're a co-founder like being the one like when things you know happen like you're the person to be called and you're like okay I have to figure this out now. Like, you know, it's like really hard. Um, and it just, yeah, it really speaks to that, that idea of like, you know, when you're married to something like that, like it really is your child. And if you want it to survive, like you've got to be all in it. Like it really, um, it's definitely not easy. Running psychedelic grad has been quite the challenge. Yeah. and I can't imagine having like a physical space with a lab and multiple other people and all kinds of funding and all of these other layers to it, it must be a whole nother experiential kind of world to it. it's so interesting
1: yeah st- starting a podcast I've known a few people who've started podcasts in various domains and it's definitely like an entrepreneurial exercise as well right it has a lot of the same um, same sort of behavioral traits and requirements um, a lot of the sort of hallmarks of an entrepreneur it's definitely um, you know very dynamic real-time problem solving a lot of forward planning and organization it's yeah it's, it's not that different I don't think to being a founder probably
0: yeah. And then on top of it, we're trying to grow psychedelic grad out. We have the community side. We have the newsletter. We're trying to build partnerships. We're trying to do merchandise. We're trying to and all while we're still trying to really figure out like, you know, like we feel like we have an idea of what our place is in the psychedelic space, but making sure like, you know, kind of really nailing it down and then using that as kind of that forward focus with everything else that we continue to do and um and building that community. And it's just it's a wild ride for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. I believe it.
0: Um, but that's so insightful and interesting to kind of see how you switch from this academic role and even seeing how some of the skills that you had with, you know, being a part of early startups and seeing that transition into uh, you know, what you were doing and with building the early stages of silo. Um, but it's just so, it's just really interesting. Um but also kind of seeing how you've had to adjust and do different things and um, take on different tasks that maybe necessarily you weren't sure were going to be a part of it, which is um, a whole new. I, honestly, it's a it's a really big challenge. Um, you know, when you said about you don't necessarily want to speak to specific challenges, I think, you know, deciding to be the co-founder of Silo is a massive challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. And such a growing experience, but it sounds so fascinating.
1: There's a lot of imposter syndrome there as well, obviously. I think that's also a pretty, pretty normal part of being a especially a first time founder, I feel. Um and you know, and every business is different. So even being a repeat founder, you know, every every company you start is going to be entirely different to the one that you started before. And some of those skills will translate and you'll need new skills. Um but yeah, the the main thing is just, yeah, you know, not to give up, I think. Um yeah there's always you know you're always going to be afraid that there are things that you don't know how to do or can't do or whatever and, and within reason um you know as long as you try you will you will find a solution if you if you're driven enough and, and capable enough you'll absolutely find a solution or you'll find someone who can help you come to a solution or provide a solution so yeah don't don't be dismayed by you know the, the challenges and, and your fear of, of not being able to to overcome them
0: that's encouraging that makes me feel better about what yeah. i'm doing
1: yeah for sure <laughs>
0: There's a will, there's a way, I'll make it. Exactly. We'll we'll make it you know. (laughs) Um, All right. I don't have any other specific questions about your academic journey or what you do at Silo Health unless there's something I didn't ask or any last pieces that you want to add in there before we start kind of looking to the future.
1: No, I think that's that's pretty solid.
0: Okay, perfect. All right, then we will um, go ahead and look to the future. I'm interested to hear what your hopes are for the future of the psychedelic world, um, and especially the future of silo. And, you know, what do you want to see happen with silo within the field? And, you know, how do you see yourself fitting in and contributing to that?
1: Yeah, the, the psychedelic space more generally, you know, I'm, I'm hoping all that people draw parallels to the the cannabis industry, but you know, I think these are two fundamentally apart from the fact that both involve, um, you know, plant or, or fungi medicines. Um, these are two quite different areas. You know, a lot of psychedelic uh, commercialization is going to be around um, clinics and and not as a take home sort of recreational substance. Um, so, so my biggest wish there is just that. Um, you know, we, we don't get too many charlatans who are, you know, in for a bit of a gold rush that people are really interested in sort of evidence-based approaches to, to developing really ethical businesses um, that are actually intended to, to help people rather than to purely make money. Um, you know, we don't get too many sort of fly-by-night operators setting up um, dodgy clinics. And um, you've got these interesting cases of sort of abuses in trials and things covered in, in Dave Nichols' podcast um, cover story. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see, you know, a well-regulated industry that that avoids some of those pitfalls um, because I think ultimately regulation is the only way to make these things sort of um, affordable, safe and effective for the people who really need them. Um, and, and in terms of silo, I think that's that's sort of our, our mission from day one. You know, if we've got our values on the website, um, yeah, we want to contribute new medicines to this area. Um, you know, obviously we're a for-profit company, um, but that doesn't mean, you know, we're immoral or or unethical in any way it's it's just that drug discovery is very expensive Um, a lot of people don't appreciate just how expensive drug discovery is but to get an fda approved medicine you know you're looking at probably about a billion dollars depends what numbers you use but the the development timelines can be 10 to 15 years through the entire uh, path to market and it's about a billion dollars you know give or take a couple hundred million depending on the drug so there aren't many products that are developed um that have a positive impact in people's lives that cost that much money or take that long to develop. So it's really just a, a sort of um, unfortunate consequence of um, of the development of medicines is that it's a very risky, costly business. And therefore, you know, drugs generally are going to cost something. One of the, you know, think about psychedelics and, and capitalism. Um, I'm speaking on a, a panel about this topic here in, in uh, this weekend One of the other things that people don't appreciate is that it's not any sort of commercial moat. You know, people have issue with companies like Compass Pathways who are seeking this really formalized FDA approval process for their therapy. Um, In order to make that sort of a a worthwhile um, endeavor in terms of the risk profile, um, of course, they have to, you know, market that as a a commercial drug at, at some cost people are really concerned around this idea of commercial moats in this space. Um, And and I take a sort of um, dissenting view on that whole thing because people don't appreciate that Um, in drug development, like a lot of things that are are patent protected, there's only a period of exclusivity after that. These things become generic medicines that are available very cheaply to to whoever wants them Um, and various generics manufacturers. You know, if if there's only one provider, um, there is a natural competition there where other generics manufacturers can can jump in to make a cheaper drug if they're able to do so. Um, So a lot of people seem to be overly concerned on this, this idea that there'll be, you know, indefinite sort of exclusivity around certain companies or certain products. Uh, and and the other interesting thing that I think will occur is that um, there'll be sort of a liberal liberalisation more generally, um, and this is sort of what we saw with cannabis, right? So so THC as a formulation um, is an approved drug um, for sort of AIDS reduced wasting and, and chemotherapy induced nausea, and it was approved many many years ago. Um, CBD is an approved FDA approved drug for Dravet syndrome um, as Epidiolex by by GW Pharma. These products, you know, are Reimbursable products, they're kind of expensive for patients. But along with that has come this broader liberalization in, in the cannabis space. And that means that other alternative cannabis products are now available. And I think we'll see the same thing happen with psychedelics. It, it won't be an either or. The fact that Compass Pathways is pursuing approval for psilocybin means that that solution will exist for people who want it and for people whose insurance can cover it. Um, and at the same time, I think there'll be a broader liberalization where people will also have state run. Um, psilocybin clinics as well. So I, th- I think, you know, both things will be possible. And I think for the industry overall, it's it's all good as long as the regulation is there. So I think having, you know, decriminalisation in different parts of the country in the US is super interesting. Even more important, will be having well-regulated clinics. So I- I'm glad that these clinics will be springing up. I just hope that they're, one of the benefits of, of going through FDA approval is that they're very stringent on how that therapy can be deployed. Um, as long as a sort of similar regulatory approach is followed for these uh, state-run clinics, um, I, I think there'll be a lot of treatment options available for a lot of people. So I think overall, um, it's, it, it's a promising time for a number of patients who currently don't have very good treatment options. And I, I think we shouldn't get too caught up on um, the sort of for-profit versus non-profit distinction and, and sort of painting everyone with the same brush. It's, there's a lot of nuance in this space and in commercial drug development generally. Um, and, you know, thinking back to some conversations I, I had with Mark Smith Healthcare is is this one that people take a particularly funny view on because, um, because it's health, right? Everyone feels like they're entitled to have the, the right to health, um, which is absolutely true. Uh, but, you know, drugs that improve lives, it's one of these few products where, um, you know, the, the, the incentivization to develop a product that actually saves someone's life or, or cures hepatitis C uh, needs to be... The scientists doing that work and the companies developing these products that are very risky, they do need to be incentivized some way. And that's, that was sort of the view of, of this mentor I mentioned, Mark Smith. And he said, you know, everyone's happy to pay $1,500 for a new iPhone, but an iPhone won't save your life or, you know, let you live a, a long and healthy life. So, we, we do have this sort of interesting dichotomy between sort of consumer tech and, and biotech. Um, and, and in fact, one's much riskier and much more costly to develop than others. So, um, yeah, I absolutely... I take issue with sort of price gouging and other things that happen in the, the pharmaceutical industry generally. But, you know, it's really important to understand that this is not, this is often not purely to do with the company. It's a very dynamic, um, complex and pretty opaque system in terms of drug pricing, especially in the US. There's conversations going on um, between a number of different groups. Um, and this is what leads to sort of high drug prices. So yeah, I'm generally not in favour at all of the sort of um, you know, price gouging beyond what's important to actually make sure that there's incentive for people to develop really important medicines. That was deep. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yes. it's one of the, I, I take issue with it because I've had pe- people, you know, when you tell people you work in biotech, they they look at you like you know you're you're an arms dealer or a, you know a nuclear weapons manufacturer sometimes, and I'm like, you know, big big pharma has issues in a number of ways in the same way that any big corporation was, and those are really you know large corporate issues not not biotech issues specifically small biotech companies operate quite differently um and you know i i've got a lot of friends who are academic scientists who are startup founders in biotech like i i can guarantee you that like no one gets out of bed thinking wow i just can't wait to you know rip off sick patients and make as much money as possible like it's it's absolutely not the reason anyone gets into science it's um it's it's a lot of really hard work that typically doesn't pay very well for a very long time so um, yes, yeah, so it's one of these small points that I, I take a bit of issue with in this sort of for-profit versus non-profit debate in the psychedelic space.
0: Yeah, and I really, I appreciate you, you know, expressing your passion and thoughts around this. Um, and especially speaking, like you had mentioned to that nuance and recognizing how, um, you know, small biotech companies operate differently than larger biotech companies and understanding Like yeah, it's it's true. Like it has to be incentivized in some way. These drugs are not cheap. They're not free to produce. Um, FDA approval is extraneously expensive um, and takes a long time. Um, So it's it's you know as as a social scientist, I think of all of kind of the social constructs that can make people's lives challenging and difficult and create injustices, right? But I think in a way, your response kind of speaks to some of the structural things that these companies, biotech companies and even you know big farm as a whole has to kind of work through and go through that can create challenges that maybe especially from someone like myself, maybe on the outside, you may be very critical of but seeing kind of your insider perspective and understanding all of these nuances and all these little pieces that are all a part of it helps to paint a, uh, a more holistic picture to understand. The complexities of it and you know painting that wide brush across the entire industry or you know big pharma as a whole um, is a disservice to understanding how biotech works and how you know all these complicated processes come together in very dynamic and uh, interesting ways so i appreciate you kind of breaking that down a little bit it makes me think a little bit more it makes me want to be a little bit more critical on my own perspective when i think about this issue
1: everyone should, should be informed on sort of how drug pricing works and it's it, it's hard it's actually hard to inform yourself because it's intentionally very opaque and that suggests to me that you know people should really sort of be lobbying for reform of of health insurance and and of drug pricing more generally um, so you know if you yeah if you have the will and, and the time this is this is an area that probably deserves a lot of attention yeah you know find your your local representatives and and you know petition them to, to sort of enact some change and, and reform the laws so that it's a, a more equitable system for everyone
0: Yeah. And I think um, I feel like I've had conversations before, too, with people and like how to make even in terms of when we think about incentivizing companies to develop these types Mm -hmm. of drugs, like, you know, um, as practitioners and insurance companies, like there's ways to still make it affordable for people who literally have nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. We have sliding scales. There's you know, there's all kinds of other options that can be combined with um, you know some of the other complex things going on with biotech industry. To still make these accessible to people, other um,
1: we, otherwise success, might not have access. Exactly, we, we've had some success with this, and a really interesting one that not everyone knows about is that the former model for pharmaceutical development was the concept of a blockbuster drug. So, for things like you know hypertension or yeah cardiovascular disease, you want you want a pretty cheap drug that people have to take every day, but a lot of people take it every day, and that produces its own sort of perverse incentives. Um, you end up with people with rarer diseases not being not having medicines developed for them at all. They're effectively a marginalized patient group. So there's this really interesting act introduced in the US called the Orphan Drug Act, which provided financial incentivization for biotech companies and pharma to work on diseases that affect fewer than a threshold number of patients in the US. Um, And it had huge impact. So you actually saw biotech companies for the first time going after these diseases that were quite rare, that didn't affect that many people, but were generally very serious. Um, Prior to that, you had almost none of this work going on, except in a few very specialized biotech companies. And then it became more generally appealing because there was a sort of voucher system introduced so that... Uh, aspects of the costs of regulatory filing could be offset against sort of future development programs and things so that there absolutely are ways to sort of restructure things um you know you know i'm not an expert in health economics but but in terms of insurers reimbursement schemes um, there absolutely are ways at a sort of um, where there's the political will and at a legislative level you can act absolutely reform the system um and make it more fair and equitable and i think this is something that you know people who are interested in social justice um i'm very interested in some other areas of law reform um it's absolutely an area that that, uh, you know i hope people are, are dedicating some serious time to
0: yeah it's definitely something to think more about and um It almost makes me want to start like some type of social interest that (laughs) brings in like multiple people to like have conversations and like, how does this happen? How do we make it happen? It's just, it's really fascinating because like you paint, like the way that you describe it, it's, it's very complex and it's going to take a lot of different people in a lot of different fields to come and put their heads together to create. As, you know, I, like I teach my students all the time because I teach about social justice issues. But, um, you know, these are very complex issues and they require very complex solutions to address them. Um, yeah. You know, and this very much applies to that. So so this has been a really wonderful conversation. To wrap things out, um, I just want to offer you a chance to give any last piece of advice or encouragement to our listeners.
1: Oh, well, that's that's a tough one. I don't know if I have have that much particularly good advice to give um yeah probably probably a bit of a trope but i'd say just you know really find something that that you're passionate about doesn't have to be you know all consuming but you know if you're if you're doing work that you don't think is is particularly valuable to you intrinsically or is having some impact then it might be time to think about doing something else um and if you're you know if you're experiencing some challenges just just remember the sort of power of networks and and good mentors and and make some changes and, and see what comes of it
0: yeah I think that that's some great advice and and something that i've I actually wrote on my my outline here that I wanted to highlight here at the end was something that I've kind of seen thematically throughout our conversation is is I can just see the passion and how you're really driven by helping people and that's um i think that's really important to speaking about a lot of things that you've brought up in our conversation like you know uh, persevering through challenges having grit um taking risks and making change in where you're working and, and what you're doing. Um, and I think that's something that I wanted to just highlight one last time to our, our listeners is um, that, you know, some people in this industry will be driven by just making money, but I can tell by the way that you talk about this and um, the things that drove you to do the kind of work that you do, that you're very passionate and that you care very much about creating long lasting um, overarching societal and and cultural change with the work that you do. And, And I really appreciate that that type of human empathy that you have and that you share with us and and our listeners in our conversation today. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, The last thing that we can really say before we sign off is um, if any of our listeners are interested in uh, connecting with you and making contact with you, what would be the best way that they can reach out and ask questions or learn more about you? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, yeah, our website is is pretty easy, it's just silo.bio, so p s y l o.bio. Um I think we have a contact form there. Um you know, if you want to purchase some merchandise, we, we have a nice uh merch store set up with a independent printer in Melbourne. Uh all of the proceeds of that purchase go to um the Black Dog Institute, which is a, a depression research institute here in Australia. Um so this is not not for silo's use, this is actually a continue supporting um you know mental health research whilst whilst advocating for silo um, yeah, you can contact us by that contact form. Um, my email is sam at silo.bio, very easy. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, le- less so these days, but I used to be very active on Twitter. Um, and we're also very easy to find on, on LinkedIn and other sort of social platforms. Um, we have a newsletter if you're interested in the space more broadly. Um, we have a newsletter uh, curated by Dr. Dilara Pacheci, who's a, um, a research fellow here who also does our, our communications. Um, and you can sign up for that on our website as well.
0: Wonderful. I will make sure I include a bunch of links to all of those resources and contact forms and all that fun stuff in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much again, Sam, for having this conversation with me today, enlightening me about the biotech world, sharing your passions, um, you know, being open and empathetic with me and our listeners and just um, being a part of, you know, sharing your journey so that they can help to forge their own. I know I learned so much and you've given me so many things to think about and research and learn more about so that I can continue to educate myself and, um, and you know, learn more and contribute back to the space. So thank you for all of that.
1: No, thank you so much for the conversation, Gabby. It's, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I want to direct your attention to the show notes once again, where you can find relevant links from our conversation and ways to connect with Sam. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump on over to our Psychedelic Grad community page. The link is in the notes below. Also, when you join our community, you'll get a weekly newsletter filled with psychedelic goodies, including psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings. I also want to remind everyone that our friends over at Psychedelics Today have just launched their second cohort of Vital, a 12-month psychedelic certificate training program for professionals to master the elements of psychedelic-informed therapy and integration. And again, this starts on April 17th of 2023. Applications are open now and being accepted until February 28th. Space is limited, so make sure you get your seat. For more information, you can find our affiliate link in the show notes. If you'd like to support Psychedelic Grad and the Curious to Serious podcast so we can keep the dream alive, click the link in the show notes to donate and buy us a coffee. Finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so we know we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast.